All right, so we've spent the last, wow, like three months looking at, at uh, the book of Luke. And so tonight, today, we start Advent. And um, the calendar that we use in, in churches to, to do the, the Advent season, it's called the lectionary. And the lectionary tells you uh, what verses have been chosen literally a thousand years ago for you to preach on today. And so the first Sunday of Advent, as you can see, that each Sunday of Advent represents a different aspect. And so hope, peace, joy, and love. And so hope is the first Sunday. And I, I will admit that when I first read this text in Romans 13, I, I thought, okay, so they must have been buttoning up the Advent meeting. And it's like, oh, we got to get this Sunday. I, I don't know, Romans. Romans, just throw some Roman verse in there. And, and then they were going call it, to call it a day. I had a hard time connecting this. Uh, over the course of the last two weeks, though, as I've been working to prepare, um, I've been amazed of two things. One, of how this text walks us through uh, what hope really is. A, and then B, how it ties in with everything that we've been talking up to, to, to now in the church. And this idea that Jesus is putting out there in the book of Luke of my kingdom coming is not some future thing out there that you got to wish for. My kingdom coming is in the day-to-day-to-day -to -day -to -day fight. I actually, in looking at who came up with the lectionary calendar, uh, realized that it, and back in 1153, there was a guy named uh, Bernard of Claveau, um, and he said, Christians have spoken of the three comings of Christ in the flesh in Bethlehem, in our hearts daily, and in the glory at the end of time. Okay, now I want us to think about what uh, this guy is saying. That Jesus, we look forward to him coming, one in the first advent. That word advent is a fancy word that just literally in Latin means coming. So we, we look with the nation of Israel as they look forward to their Messiah for Thousands of years waited for God to fulfill his promise. So that Advent is what we'll celebrate on the 25th. That's what Christmas is all about. We're going to see a thousand videos and movies that all say, we have to remember what Christmas is really about, and that's Jesus coming. It's not about the toys. It's not about the stuff. Yes, we get it. Okay, so that's that first Advent. And we usually talk about during Advent, we look forward to him coming again. So as we celebrate, the whole idea behind the candles and the Advent celebration is saying we look forward to, with Mary and Joseph, we look forward to him coming that first time, and then we transfer that to our lives today and say we look forward to him coming again. But what we've learned for the last three months is what, what was this guy's name again? Because he had a really cool name, Bernard of Clairvaux. I, if, I, they just had cooler names back then, I guess. Um, so Bernard of Clairvaux was saying was, was exactly what Jesus was teaching. That God's kingdom coming isn't just some future thing. It is a future thing that we look to, but it's also what Jesus said. The king is in your midst. All right, so let me, let's just be honest here. For the last, like we said, few weeks I've been teaching this, and we looked at the disciples saying, where? We looked at, at the Pharisees saying when, and we've talked about how 
God's kingdom is in our day, today, today, today. I've had several people who have come to me and said, okay, Pastor Tom, I'm in it. I'm buying. This sounds good. How? How do I make my life tomorrow live in the light of God's kingdom as opposed to what I'm doing today? How does that happen? And that's exactly what this text is saying to us. This text is answering that question. Bernard of Clairvaux is saying that Jesus' advent the first time we get. We understand he's coming back. I don't think anybody in this room would disagree that Jesus is coming back. Again, just laying it on the table, where we as Christians in 2019 struggle is, is I want to see Jesus alive in my life on Monday. I want to see that second incarnation that Bernard's talking about. This text is getting us there. So the text starts out and says, besides this, besides what? And the reality is, is we've got to understand what's going on in the book of Romans to really understand what's going on in Romans 13. And so I'm going to move really fast and take us through the whole book of Romans to get us to this text. And so I'm going to need you to listen really fast with me So as we go. Okay, so Romans chapter 1 through 3. Paul writes, sits out and writes a letter to this church in Rome. And in the first three chapters, the whole book of Romans is about God's righteousness. The question that we're asking, how do I live my life today like Jesus wants me to live it? How can God's righteousness actually impact my life? And so Romans 1 through 3, Paul wants to lay down the hammer and the realization that you can't do it on your own. Here's the reality, believers. You cannot white-knuckle through your sin. I can't white-knuckle through my sin. Now, what I mean by that is I can't sit there and go, okay, so I'm not going to lust, I'm not going to lust, I'm not going to lust, I'm not, and I can't focus on my sin and think that's going to help me overcome my sin because I'm still focused on the sin. And Paul lays out that all of humanity, when left of themselves, okay, just look at the fact that Adam and Eve were given the best of circumstances. They were given a garden. They walked with God every day. They had fruit trees everywhere. They had critters that ran around. Everything was awesome, right? And they still messed it up. So the problem's not our circumstances. The problem's not that you live in a trailer. The problem's not that you drive an old beat-up Ford. The problem's not, it's not your circumstances. It's not your job. It's not the spouse. It's not the kids. It's not your circumstances. Because man, given the best circumstances, can mess it up. That's what he's saying. And so in Romans chapter 1, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Every human being who has ever lived has recognized that there has to be a creator. Our problem is that if there's a God, that means he has, has the right to tell me what to do. And so we don't like it. But nobody has an excuse. Well, I didn't know that there was a God. No, you knew. You can't walk around in this, in this world and not think somebody made this. It's not possible. 
Any of you guys who are hunters have all experienced this. You get out in the woods, it's like four o'clock in the morning, you're sitting there, the, everything seems dead to the world, and just as the sunrise comes up, it seems like underneath your feet, everything comes alive. It's the most amazing feeling in the world. There are these squirrels that are like this big that sound like a seven-point buck tromping through the woods. Ladies, you got to get out in the woods and experience it. And the squirrels start moving, and, and the, the, the woods just come alive. And little, little birds come and sit on the branch and look at you like, what are you doing in my tree? And it's just amazing. Nobody's experienced that and said, this all just happened by chance. Nobody. Nobody has an excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. All of mankind knows that there's a God, knows that he's a rewarder of those who do good and choose to say, I'm not doing what he tells me to do. And so, and when our thinking goes south, their behavior follows. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They're too smart to believe in all these fairy tales, and so I'm super awesome, and then their behavior follows, and their whole life falls apart. They exchange the glory of an immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. As it is written, there's none righteous, no, not one. And so as Paul moves to the book of Romans, he makes the argument that mankind has fallen, mankind's darkened in his own imagination, and he chooses to, to be that way. And then in Romans 3, he says that everybody is left to themselves as bad. And we've talked about this a thousand times. Nobody in this room had to teach your kids to lie. They, they figured that out all on their own, right? Nobody had to say, let me tell you what you need to do. All right, so when your little sister comes in and wants a toy, you pick the toy up and you bap her in the head as hard as you can, and then she's not going to want the toy. Nobody had to teach their kids that. And yet every one of us had to go in and say, what did you do? Oh, my gosh. Well, she wanted my toy. Mine, mine. None's righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good. No, not one. So First, Paul establishes that everybody knows that there's a God and we choose to walk away from him. And then Paul goes on in Romans to say, and nobody is good. Nobody can sit around and say, I've done it okay. And then Paul goes on through this arc in Romans 1 through 3. He talks about how wicked mankind is that on our own we can't do any good. And then he steps into Romans 4, which says that the law is not going to save anybody, whether that's the law in the Bible, which is the perfect reflection of God, or whether that's the law, the, the set of rules that you've established. That's not going to justify anybody. We can't follow our own moral standards. Everybody in here at some point in your life has been disappointed in yourself. We can't do it. The law is not going to justify anybody. None of us can say, hey, look at all this good stuff that I've done. That's not going to happen. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his dues. And so if the, we could work the law, then it wouldn't be God who was doing it. It would be us that's doing the work. But we can't work the law. And so, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace through God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so Romans 5 walks in and says that Jesus had to do work so that we could be justified. As we've talked about the kingdom, we broke it down this way. We have been being saved. 
we were saved in the past. We were saved, if you want to, to just be completely forensic, you were saved when your sins were poured out on Jesus on the cross and he said, it is finished. You were saved when you got down on your knees and said, God save me, right? We were saved then, but we're being saved now, right? We've been justified, that's that past tense, that where God took all of your sin and applied it to Jesus and took Jesus' righteousness and applied it to you, but I still get up in the morning and have to fight my own sin. In Sunday school today, we were talking about being content. I still have to fight contentness. I still have to fight being satisfied in God. I still have to fight my identity being in Christ. So what Romans 5 is establishing is that Jesus did everything that needs to be done so that you get saved. But Romans 5 also says that Jesus came, but we still struggle with our sin, don't we? Don't we? We still have to fight the fight. And so Romans 5 ends on this idea that, okay, so you're saved not because of your works, but because fully what Jesus did. And so where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. Now, the natural thing for us to, to say, if we, if we think that, okay, where sin abounds, grace does more, much more abound, our natural thought process would be, well, then I can just sin all I want, and God's okay with that. What shall we say then, he says in Romans 6, 1? What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we who are dead to sin live any longer therein? Don't you know that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death, that like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Okay, now track with me. I know we're going over a lot of stuff, but we've got to go do this to get here. So the ark is this way. Man is wicked. We can't do anything on our own. The law can't save us, it can't change us. We can't come up with a list of rules. It's all God, so that means I can do whatever I want to, right? Then Paul answers the question, no, we can't do that. Which then leads us to, if we finish Romans 6, we go, well then, then I have to be perfect. I, I can't sin at all, right? And that would leave us hopeless. Because Romans 7 deals with the fact that we still have to deal with our flesh. I do not understand my own actions, for I don't do what I want, but the very thing I hate. Am I the only one that lives here? The thing that I want to do, I don't do. No, if I don't do what I want, then I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is my flesh. For I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability Romans 7 is the heart cry of every Christian who's ever lived. I want to do what's right. I want to stop getting mad and yelling at my kids and kicking the dog. I want to stop lusting. I want to stop doing this booze or drug or, or, or I want to stop looking at pornography. I want to, the thing that we want to do, we don't do, and the very thing we don't want to do, we end up doing. So it would seem like at the end of Romans 7, we just throw our hands up and say, well, Paul, you've nailed it. That's where I'm living. Nothing I can do. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. But, so we end Romans 7. So let's go back to the ark. 
Here's our ark, right? Romans 1, mankind is bad. There's nothing good in us. We can't earn our way to God. Romans 1 through 3, Romans 4, the law is not going to save you. Romans 5, Jesus justified you, but now we're still dealing with the flesh. So Romans 6, you don't have to sin. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is alive in you, Romans 7. But that reality is that I keep on sinning. The very thing that I want to do, I don't, I don't do. And the thing that I don't want to do, I do. Which is why Romans 8 is such a powerful chapter in the Bible. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you have experienced chapter 7, if you've experienced the fact that you can't do it on your own, and the very thing that you don't want to do, you do, and the very thing you don't, that you want to do, you don't do, then Romans 8 is for you, my beloved. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not some, not a little bit, not whatever. There's so many times people have come to me and said, Pastor Tom, you just don't understand what I did. I've I've ruined everything. I've done this and I've done that and I've messed it all up. Well, Romans 8 doesn't start out and say there's some condemnation. If you've really messed it up, there's still a little bit left for you. As Martin Luther said, when the devil reminds me that I'm a very great sinner, I remind him that a very great sinner requires a very great savior. And we have a very great Savior. And there, therefore, is now no condemnation. All of the shame, all the wrath, all of the judgment that you deserve was poured out on Christ. And he took it. There is no more wrath left. There is, therefore, now no condemnation. And But everybody... When they hear that, says, but you don't know my circumstances. I think I've, I've shared with the church, I had a lady that I, uh, I was involved in her getting saved, and, and I was discipling her, and she came into my office, and she said, I can't do this Christianity thing anymore. I, it was shocking. It was like she'd been a believer for like two weeks. I'm like, what are you talking about? And she said, you just don't understand what I've done. And so she shared with me how many years before, her and her husband had gotten to a big fight, and they had separated, and she found out that she was pregnant and she did not want to have a child with this man who she was separated from. And so she ended up getting an abortion and um, then they got back together and now it had been 23, 24 years later and she had never told her husband that she had aborted their child and she had never healed from the wound of that action. And she said, I can't do this whole Christianity thing. I am too wicked a sinner. And so I took her to Romans 8. And Paul ends this chapter by saying, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? That includes you. If God is for you, you can't be against you. God's going to fight for you. But you don't understand what I've done. No, Paul understands exactly where we're going to go in our head. So he goes on and says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. So what Paul is saying is, is all of the sin in your life, no matter how wicked, no matter how evil, no matter how messed up it is, it's God himself who's the judge, and it's God himself who justifies. And if he said that you're free, you're free indeed. 
Who is to condemn? Who can stand up if God is the one who's the judge and then God says you're free? Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is the right hand of God interceding for us. And what I tried to explain to her and what you have to understand is that every time, every day, in fact, the Bible says that the devil is in front of God daily making accusations to the brethren. Today, Satan is at the throne of God saying, Tom Harrison has no right to be yours. He has no right to stand in front of those people and preach your word. He is wicked And the person who stands up to defend me is God himself in the form of Jesus. He himself is interceding for us. Yes, he is wicked, but I died for him and I have righteousness. And I said he was free and he's free indeed. And so I can come up with all kinds of things in my mind that are bigger than this. Who shall separate us from the love of God, the love of Christ? So In your mind, think of what you think can separate you from God, and Paul, I guarantee you, has touched on it. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. For it is written, for your sakes we're being killed all day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. When Paul talks about tribulation, he's not just talking about, hey, we got, I was, that guy got work made fun of me one time. Said I was a Jesus freak. No, we're talking about getting drug outside of the city and beat. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And it's the love of God that is what calls Jesus to go to the cross, and it's the love of God that justifies you. Romans 9 through 11 deals with this. We're looking at our ark. So we started way back here in Romans 1. Everybody's a sinner. Everybody's wicked. Nobody gets it on their own merit. Romans 1 through 3. Romans 4, the law's not going to justify. Romans 5 says that uh, it's Jesus who justifies, and he's the one who gives us grace, and it's the grace that saves us. Romans 6, do we keep on sinning because of grace? No, God forbid. Romans 7, but I keep on sinning. I keep doing the bad things that I want. Paul steps in and says there's no condemnation. Romans 9 through 11 says that God's not done with Israel. He's going to save them. Brothers, it's my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they would be saved. And then when he gets to Romans 12 through 16, then he tells us how to act like it. Just like we said when we were looking at Romans chapter uh, 1 through 3, That bad beliefs, bad attitudes lead to bad behavior. What Paul is saying here is that good beliefs, good attitudes lead to good behavior. So he spent 10, 11 chapters building a theology. And then he's only going to take four to say, now go act like it. Go live like it. And he walks us through how, how to do that. Romans 12, 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, this leads us to an important thing here. Okay, up to this point, we've been talking about being justified. 
Now we're talking about being sanctified. Being changed. But today, living out the righteousness of God. Today, being different than the person beside me at work. Being different than the way that I was yesterday. Now we're talking about being sanctified. In fact, he refers to the acts that we do so that we become transformed to the image of God as our worship. We talk a lot about worship. We talk a lot about praising God, lifting him up, and the most worshipful thing you can do is act like a believer. That's your spiritual worship. Giving your body up, giving your natural desires up, Now, he's not saying, okay, in justification, that's all God and and you can't white-knuckle your way through it. And now he's saying in sanctification, start white-knuckling your way through it. That's not at all what he's saying. And so often in the church, that's what we say, right? It was all God that you got saved. Praise the Lord. Now get out of here and act like a Christian. That's not what Paul is saying. So our far context in the book of Romans, Paul is building up. How do we live this out? Now, the near context, what's happening right around those verses, Paul says, Oh, no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves has fulfilled the law. We're talking about the law here and how to act like we're being called to act. And he says that the thing that drives obedience to the law is love. And what he means by that, and he explains it, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up with the words, you shall love your neighbors as yourself. This makes sense to us, right? If I love my neighbor, I'm not going to steal his lawnmower. I mean, this isn't hard to understand. If I, if I love my wife, I'm not going to cheat on her. I mean, we're just, it's just brass tacks. So the law can be summed up with love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Knowing that the time and the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. So when we first started this text, what we're talking about is Paul is saying, wake up. So we've come full circle about God's kingdom coming. Paul is saying, wake up, participate in the kingdom, come along beside. Now, see, when, when we talk about evangelism, I use this language all the time. When I preached on evangelism, I say this. I say, okay, so God is going to fulfill the great, commit, the great, um, the great commission, thank you. Clearly, it's been a, I've had too much Thanksgiving. Alabama didn't have a defense. It's been a long week. Okay, we say God's going to fulfill the Great Commission whether we participate in it or not. So us telling our neighbor about Jesus is us being able to come along beside God as he's changing the world. It's our privilege, it's not our duty. It's our honor to be able to come along beside the God that made everything and join with him as he does something. The same kind of language is what Paul is using here. He's saying, wake up. Wake up. And then he walks us to, through the how-tos. Okay. It's changing clothes. So he says, so this is what we have to do. 
Let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime. Not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immoralities and sensualities, not in quarreling and jealousy. So let's park here for a minute. This is all about changing clothes. We're taking off the clothes of the old life and we're putting on the clothes of the new. He lists out things that we're not supposed to participate in. Not in orgies, not in drunkenness. And so both, both of those are going out. That's just Paul's way of saying getting tore up from the floor up. You know what? I've had a rough week. Alabama still hadn't fired, fired, fired that defensive coordinator. Everything's going terrible. Ah, so I'm just going to go tie one on. Paul is saying, don't do that. That didn't help anybody. Don't think you're going to drown your sorrows with a girlfriend or with a boyfriend. Don't do that. Not in sexual immorality. And sensuality isn't, we say, read sensuality and we think that what that means is, is sexual stuff, but he's already dealt with sexual stuff. Sensuality is anything to do with the senses. Have you ever sat down with a pecan pie because you had a rough day? <laughs> Am I the only one that's ever done that? Walked into Dollar General and said, this has been a rough day. Let me see here. I think we're doing the ho-hos and doing the, the and, and, and you, your sensual stuff, your body, anything to deal with the senses. Don't do that. Not in, now, I know this is a Baptist church, and so I'm, do I need to look this way when I say this? Not in quarreling and jealousy. I mean, is this going to get me in trouble here? Is it wrong for me to say it's that Paul has orgies in the same list with running your mouth? Can, can we say that? Because there's a whole bunch of us that we read orgies and we look around the room and go, <laughs> I don't know who's, who this is written to. But when he says, talks about running his mouth, we start looking at the floor. Do you know what she said to me? Can you believe, come here, can you believe what that woman wore today? Good, now hussy. <laughs> Jealousies are in the same list. Somebody come pulling up, look, my wife got me a BMW for Christmas. And you go, I got a pocket knife. Or I saw a meme that said, I was, I've been hinting all year for my wife to get me a Rolex for, for my birthday, and instead she gave me a list of 10 reasons why she loved me. So jealousies are in there too. And what Paul is saying here is, is this is the natural way of things. Just doing things that feel, that's just the way everybody else does it. He left me, so I'm going to go get some, uh, uh, a half gallon of ice cream and sit down and watch some Hallmark movies. That's the way the world deals with it. And Paul's saying, we're taking those clothes off. We're not doing it that way. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision of the flesh to gratify its desires. Now, this is huge because normally what we do is we say, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and say, thank you, Jesus. Amen. It's all about God. Just put on Jesus. And then we leave. We sing, just as I am. Yes, I'm going to put on Jesus. But that doesn't, am I being along here? That doesn't mean anything for me to get in my car tomorrow to go to work. Putting on Jesus. He tells us how to do that. Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. 
Man, if you've got a problem with pornography, the way to get over it is let your wife see your search history. You don't give your flesh a way for it to work. It'll fix it straight away. If you've got a problem with booze, don't go hang out at bars. Don't keep a six-pack in the fridge. If you've got a problem overeating, don't go hang out at Chili's or wherever, El Tap or wherever it is that you, where your sin traits are, block them. He doesn't just say put on the Lord Jesus Christ and then not tell us what that means. He defines it. Make no provision for the flesh. Now, I love this because we've talked a lot about repentance. And in the church, we talk a whole lot about stop sinning. But repentance is I'm going this way, I'm sinning. And repentance is not just stopping but also turning. So he doesn't just say take off the old flesh, but he also says to put on the new flesh And so when we come down to the, okay, Pastor Tom, this is where we started out. We've gone full circle. I've just given you a theology class in the book of Romans. We've come full circle. Here we sit again. Okay, Pastor Tom, I'm in. I buy this kingdom stuff. How? How do I do it? And Paul has told us right here. And the reason why we keep beating our heads against this is because it's so simple. It's so third grade Sunday school. In fact, the Navigators about 50 years ago came up with a wheel. And it has four spokes. And they explained it this way. If any one of those spokes is missing, the wheel collapses. And it's stuff you learned in Sunday school with a flannel graph. Read your Bible. Feed. Instead of feeding the flesh, you feed your spirit. And again, we know that if I sit around and watch movies that drop the F-bomb every other word, when I stub my toe, I'm going to drop the F-bomb because that's what I'm putting into me. If I put in God's word, when life squeezes me, what's going to come out? God's word. Reading the Bible, praying, talking to God. If I said I had a relationship with Jesus and I never talked, uh, if I said I had a relationship with my wife and I never talked to her, what kind of relationship is that? Reading the Bible, praying, being around other believers in church so that they can speak into my life. I'm plugging in. I cannot tell, okay, I, I, I hope I don't hurt anybody's feelings, but I get this all the time. I'll see somebody show up five minutes after the service starts, and then once we start the invitation, they leave, and then they'll say to me, I just can't get plugged in at that church. It's such a click. You gotta be plugged in with God's people. You've got to weep with them. You've got to laugh with them. You've got to be tied into God's people. The main power of church is not in me standing up here talking. Some of you are saying amen. The main power of God bringing his people together is this brother and this brother being able to look at my life and know where my hurts are and say, brother, I'm praying for you, man. Let me come along beside you. And we speak into each other's life and we're family for real. Looking at the circle, reading the Bible, praying, being with God's people, and then giving away. Giving away both of my time my energy, I'm witnessing to other people. If you have a body of water that has, does not move but in one direction, it's going to get stagnant. And if all you're doing is, 
feed me, feed me, feed me, feed me, and you're not giving anything out, you're going to get stagnant. You're going to die. And so by doing those simple little things, you're cutting off the provision of the flesh. You're cutting off the ability for your body to, to cry out and do what it wants to do. You're letting God transform you. But it's stuff we've heard since third grade, so it feels so simple. Everybody's looking for some kind of emotional, super spiritual sounding. If you do this, if you, you come down, and it's just do the stuff you know how to do. Just be the believers that God put on the Lord Jesus Christ and stop making provision for the flesh. As we look to hope in the book of Isaiah, the word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, it shall come to pass in the latter days, oh wait, yeah, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up a hill up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it and many peoples will come and say now listen to what they say come let us go to the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob that he may teach us his ways and we may walk in his paths the prophecy about Jesus This is telling me the prophecies about the Messiah coming was that he would come and redeem his people. That's the justification. He's done that. But it was also looking for God to come and teach us so we can change who we are. We've always, as as a human race, known that we need help. And so as this first Sunday of Advent, we're hoping, we're hoping for with Mary and Joseph And the nation of Israel, we're hoping for that Messiah to come with them. And we're celebrating that. And we'll celebrate it on the 25th. We, as God's people, cry out, Maranatha. We hope for him to come back. But what this text is telling me is we also, we're hoping that he changes who we are. And to do that, we have to change clothes. We have to take off making provision of the flesh and put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Father God, Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this text. Lord, I know that it's been a whole lot of information. So Lord, I pray that you would allow this to kind of hang out in our heads and germinate and grow into changed lives. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your word. It's so rich and deep and so much more pressed down, overflowing, Lord, I pray that it would change the way that we live. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.